And hello, everybody. Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project. Today on the show... A new world of sound. Adventures in stereo. Listen. Yeah, it would be a good idea if you were listening in stereo, though mono will do. The point is, it's all about sound. That is the specialty of my guest today, who is... Seth Horowitz. I'm an auditory and vestibular neuroscientist, and I've been studying and living with sound for probably 30 years. Well, I have lived a long time with sound also, but I certainly don't know anything compared to Seth Horowitz. I mean, this is the guy who proved, proved to the world that tadpoles can hear. For many decades, scientists thought they were stone deaf until Seth set them straight. And that is just one of his many sound-related accomplishments. I was a professor at Brown University and Stony Brook University. I've studied everything from animal communication to how sound and the balance system affect sleep and other behaviors. He has studied hearing in not just frogs, but also bats and humans. He has invented some crazy gadgets in order to do that research, like the bat-mounted laser backpack. He has recorded and experimented with some of the world's strangest sonic phenomena. He's consulted on movies, and he has designed music with special algorithms to intentionally screw with your brain. In fact, uh, some of his compositions do such a good job of disorienting people that he explicitly advised me not to play them over the radio. So I won't. But we can at least talk about that stuff and listen to a lot of other auditory curiosities. That is the plan for the hour ahead, so stay with me as I talk to Seth Horowitz, sonic savant and author of the book The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. Seth, if I were to say I'm going to deprive you of all your senses save one, which one would you pick? I would definitely pick hearing. It provides so much of the flow and information of our world that being without it would be intensely lonely, as far as I was concerned. I mean, no one ever wants to lose any of their senses, but I have spent time working with blind students, and you adapt. But I'm not so sure that I would adapt very well to going deaf, even though it's one of those things that slowly happens over the course of your life. You know, your book, um, which calls Sound the Universal Sense, is kind of like an argument for sound is really the greatest of all the five senses. <laughs> it's the fastest? I didn't realize that. I would have thought sight was faster since light travels faster than sound. Light travels much faster than sound, but it's not, it doesn't travel at a biologically relevant speed. I mean, if you hold a book up in front of you or a Kindle, by the time the light's gone from the paper to your eyes, it could go back and forth billions of times before it actually reached the back of your visual cortex, where you would just begin to start assembling it into recognizable shapes and colors and patterns that you could pass into language centers and interpret. Whereas with hearing, it's a much simpler series of pathways to get where it needs to go. Vision is relying on very complex second messenger systems to just to do the early signaling to take light in, then go all the way to that subway map-like map of the brain to get to the visual cortex, assemble pieces, and finally end up with something after about a quarter to three-quarters of a second. When you hear something, you start recognizing it within 51 thousandths of a second. This is because what your ears are doing is mechanical translation, which is a simpler system, which passes from the auditory nerve and gets into certain areas of the brainstem, like the cochlear nucleus, which instantly 
start segregating and recognizing certain characteristics of sounds. And the most obvious example of this is that there was an old game show named That Tune, which says, okay, how quickly can you recognize this song? Well, they're presenting something to you that you've heard before, and people respond in a tenth of a second or less, just hearing a note or two. You can't do that kind of thing visually. So if I wanted to make someone jump, better to make a scary sound than to uh, make a scary movement, let's say. Absolutely. By the time you've made something that's visually scary or sudden, uh, it's already a quarter of a second has lapsed. But if you make a sudden loud sound out of their field of view, you'll jump in 100 milliseconds, 100 thousandths of a second or a tenth of a second. <laughs> and it's only five neurons to go from your ears down to your spine, your spinal cord, to get to the muscles, to make you jump, hunch your shoulders, and start looking around. Five stops on the neural pathway. Yep. Not really stops, but, you know, five junctions. Intersections. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, sound has the advantage of uh, not relying on sort of line of sight, so you can hear around corners and through things, around things. Total darkness. In total darkness. Uh, and it's also got the emotional power. Uh, you know, images can be very evocative, but there is nothing like music, for instance. Music or sound, one of the things about the speed at which you hear is that it gets to all these subconscious substrates even before you get up to conscious recognition. So it gets into emotional centers very rapidly. There is one part of the brain called the amygdala, which gets a lot of incorrect information on the press as being an emotional center. That's right, yeah. The amygdala is not an emotional center, but what it does is it gives emotional meaning to events. And it gets input from a really rapid input from, the, from hearing. And then it gets a slower one. And so what it's doing is calibrating your emotional responses to things. And because sound is so evocative emotionally, it's getting a lot of different pathways in for you to say, I've heard that before and I love it, or I've heard that before and I'm frightened of it. <laughs> so at the, the dawn of, say, cinema, when we had silent films, um, and they started showing these images, they soon figured out that they had to have some sound to really give it an emotional wallop, right? So they started adding piano or organ or orchestras. That was very quick, yeah, because just watching something move, at first it was novel, but without some kind of a sound background, it's definitely divorced from the normal world. So it was only a few years before they started having live musicians, and then they started adding scoring for orchestras to play with the movie. Uh-huh. Um, what is sound? At a very basic level, it's just a vibration of a substrate. Basically, you put some energy into some substrate, whether it's air or water or metal or rock, and you vibrate it. You actually move the molecules, and they bang up against the next molecules and make them vibrate. And so this vibrational wall spreads out in air in a sphere around you. And so this is a little chain reaction, uh, molecules bumping into other molecules, resulting in kind of a pressure wave that will travel through, say, the air, or could travel through water or through land. Exactly. Uh, and so sound is, is mechanical vibration of, exactly. of matter, unlike, say, light, which is electromagnetic radiation. Right. It's photons traveling through any kind of medium unless it gets reflected away or absorbed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with that broad definition, then, sound is a whole lot more than what we humans hear. Yes. We've broken sound up into the sonic, which is what we hear, which goes for about 20 cycles per second, or 20 hertz. 
which is about the deepest bass you can possibly hear with your ears, up to 20,000 hertz, which is only audible really to young kids who haven't had their MP3 player on too loud. <laughs> it, you can't even distinguish pitch at that point, but you can detect that something's going on. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. if you were an elephant scientist, you'd be more concerned with what we call the infrasonic, which is sounds below 20 hertz, ones that have extremely long wavelengths and require a lot of power. But they have an advantage. They don't reflect off small objects. This is why if you want to make a foghorn, something to prevent the unpleasant intersection of a ship and a rock. You don't want it bouncing off every rock and tree on the way, so you make it very low pitch, and it will just travel much, much further. It requires a lot of power, but it has a very long range. On the other hand, if you were a bat scientist or a dolphin, you'd be more concerned with everything above 20,000 hertz. This is the ultrasonic range. And for common bats like we have on the Northeast, like the big brown bat, they echolocate. They actually build the world from sound, using sounds from about 20 kilohertz up to 100,000 hertz. You know, we're going to get to bats in a moment. Uh, but first, I want to play a low sound. Uh, this is not quite infrasound, the lowest uh, frequencies below the range of human hearing. But it's pretty low, and it's one that you and your wife, China Blue is, is her name? She's a sound artist, yes? Yes. It's one that you guys recorded in Paris. All right, so you made that recording in Paris, uh, and I wonder if our listeners can even guess what is making that sound. Want to tell us? Okay, well... China Blue wanted to record the actual vibrations of the Eiffel Tower. What we did was we used geophones. Geophones are earthquake microphones. They only pick up very low sounds. And that sound was recorded by putting a geophone on the handrail at the peak of the Eiffel Tower. So what you're hearing is the structural song of the Eiffel Tower that you don't hear unless you have special equipment. So there's an example of something we wouldn't necessarily think of as sound. It's vibrations in a medium that we don't even normally listen to. Is an earthquake, are earthquake waves sound also? Well, it is, but it's so low pitched that we can't pick it up. There's some evidence that some animals actually can, and there's all these stories about you know small animals running away whenever there's going to be an earthquake. It hasn't been well documented, but I would believe it, because sometimes a lot of ground-dwelling animals are sensitive to infrasound because it makes sense for them. It lets them pick up footsteps. It lets them pick up ground vibrations, which may mean their burrow could collapse. Right, right. But it's not something we hear. Um, We tend to think of sound as those things we can hear, and specifically those things we can hear through our two eardrums. But your book reminds me that there are other ways in which human beings can hear I was very interested to read that you had met and um, studied, is that the wrong term, Uh, the great percussionist Evelyn Glennie, uh, who is widely known to be deaf, although she's not totally deaf, and yet she is a fantastic musician who plays with great precision with orchestras. Uh, In fact, uh, I've had her on this show. I interviewed her once, um, and we had some performances of hers uh, with a local orchestra. Um, In fact, why don't we hear Evelyn Glennie playing one of her favorite instruments, uh, the marimba.
the percussionist Evelyn Glenny playing marimba. The song yeah. is The Way, and I believe that was recorded not far from where I broadcast from. Uh, that was at San Juan Batista, I believe, during the uh, Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music a few years ago. And that was a clip, by the way, from the movie Touch the Sound. Did you ever see that documentary about Evelyn Glenny? No, I haven't seen it. Dude, you got to see it. It's totally up your alley. But um, Evelyn, uh, you know, again, is known to be deaf, and yet you'd never know it from the way she plays music and, and also stays in sync with other musicians and, you know, and orchestras. How does she do it? I didn't study her. I worked with her. We were working on a 3D IMAX film about sound. I thought that was a bad choice of words. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Everyone who hangs out with me after a while feels that way. But what she taught me was that you really listen with more of your body. I knew this from studying animals who have these dedicated pathways, but so do humans. We have bone conduction. We pick up vibrations through our skeleton. There are even hearing aids that are based on shaking your skull so that you can hear sound because something's happened to your tympanic pathway. But what Evelyn does is she positions herself extremely carefully. When she came out and played the concert marimba, she was barefoot. She could feel vibrations through the stage. She moved the resonators so they lined up with her calves, which were bare. And depending on the instrument she would play, she would adjust her posture so that she could pick up vibrations along the line of her neck, which was usually exposed. When she was playing a snare drum, she curled over it. When she was playing the marimba, her neck was back. So her whole body sort of became what we use as a cochlea. She could pick up the physical vibrations because she was so close. And all she, she probably just hears low-frequency sound. So she just gets a little bit of cue from that. But for a percussionist, that's the important part. And I'm sure when she's playing with other musicians, she's, I mean, watching her, she is a very visually targeted I'm sure she's monitoring visually, but she feels the music. You, you know, when I interviewed her, um, you'd never know she was hard of hearing no. because she reads lips perfectly. And But there was a moment during the interview when I had to stop because a loud leaf blower started up just outside the room we were in, and she didn't, and notice. She didn't notice it. You know, there's a famous essay by the philosopher Thomas Nagel called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Yes. Uh, you know that one? Oh, yes. Do you have a sense of what it would be like to be Evelyn Glennie? It would be acoustically limiting, and yet at the same time, she's one of those people who reaches beyond the limitations, so that the limit, apparent limitation, everyone else just disappears. It's like you can't see her being limited unless the leaf blower incident occurs. It would be a world where your your cues of your world are severely attenuated. You know, she could probably tell if a door opened or closed, but you're missing bird song, you're missing ambient sound, you're missing sort of the sounds of life. But she's so attuned to these other things, as you say, bodily vibrations, things that I and most other people probably don't notice at all, that she may have... She's compensated. Yeah, yeah. So... And we do that. That's something that all living things do. We have plasticity, and humans in particular in our brains. We reorganize our brains physically, biochemically, and functionally. To compensate, people who are blind end up having better reflexes acoustically for recognition. Uh, they tend to have better haptic sense, the sense of touch, because they have all this largely unused visual cortex, and it's no longer being taken up by vision, so it gets used for other things. This is one of the amazing things the brain can do. Uh, it can remap capabilities onto areas that are meant for different
different functions? Part of that's because even though we've, when I was going to grad school and throughout most of neuroscience history, which goes back quite a ways, we hear stories about labeled lines. You only get vision going along the optic nerve, and you only get sound traveling along the auditory nerve, and you hear the law of specific energy where you can't get anything through your eyes but light. It doesn't respond to anything else. All those old-school ideas are beginning to shade into different shades of gray at this point because it turns out things like auditory cortex, which you think would process speech, also can recognize sounds. You can get remapping and integration between multiple senses. And the only reason we're understanding this now is that our techniques have gotten good enough that we no longer just study hearing or just study vision or just study touch. We're beginning to put the pieces together. And hearing integrates so deeply with everything else that it's almost natural that if you lose one sense, another will take it over because you already have a representation in there. Mm. You know, there's a famous set of experiments with, I think it was ferrets, um, where I think they um, redirected optical inputs that are supposed to go to the visual cortex, that part of the brain that handles vision, onto the auditory cortex, that part that is specialized for sound. And this ferret ultimately developed the ability to sort of see using that sound processing part of its brain to construct images. I don't know the specific experiment, but it wouldn't surprise me as long as they had really good surgeons. <laughs> Ferret surgeons are the best. Um, let's talk about bats, and bats are a species that you've spent some time with. In fact, you were once dubbed Dr. Evil uh, for your ingenious and weird inventions, which included a bat-mounted laser pack. Yeah, uh, the much-missed Ed Mullen at Brown University was the engineer, and I would always go to him with the weirdest projects. And so he dubbed me Dr. Evil, and I carried that <laughs> title more proudly than anything else I'd ever had. Uh, that was an experiment. Uh, never got published because it was very complicated. But what, we were, what I was interested in was how do bats balance while flying at 35 miles an hour and pulling 9 Gs? And to do this, you have to be able to watch them in the dark using infrared cameras. Infrared cameras don't focus so well, so what we ended up doing was mounting tiny little laser pointer-type lasers on little backpacks that sit on the back that they could still flap their wings and it wouldn't load them down very much, but it let us see where their head was pointing and you could see where the bat actually was by looking at the glow of the back of the laser. This let us figure out where the bat was going, how fast it was flying, where it was pointing its head. You know, you have had kind of an amazing career, I gotta say. You have trained dolphins, you have recorded the Eiffel Tower with your sound artist wife, China Blue. You have created these devices for bats. You have, we're going to get into some other crazy crap you've done uh, in other domains, but amazing sound experiments. You've made music. Um, all I can say is, good for you, man. <laughs> it's been fun so far. <laughs> um, let's play a little recording of a bat that you sent me. This is a uh, big brown bat, and he's making those sounds they use for echolocation. Uh, by the way, I said he. I don't know if that's a he or a she. I don't know either. <laughs> uh, but that's a bat. Are, would those sounds normally be beyond the range of our hearing, too high for us to hear? Oh, definitely. Those sounds were slowed down ten times. Otherwise, you wouldn't hear it at all. The wow. The very lowest end would be, you know, a very young child might hear a little tiny 
chirp sound. But what bats do, as I think uh, a lot of our listeners know, is they, they make these peeps um, and send out sound that bounces off objects and returns to the bat. Um, and depending on how the sound returns, the bat can figure out where the object is and, and various characteristics of the object, including not only like cave walls, but also insects that are flying around that the bat will swoop in and eat. Um, it boggles my mind. I mean, when I think about how acoustically complex a task that is, sound gets distorted in all kinds of ways when it bounces around, uh, you know, complex surfaces. And then these bats will be doing this with a bunch of other bats sometimes. So there's a ton of peeps going out and coming back. I mean, can you explain it, Seth? Uh, well, that's not entirely, but we made some <laughs> progress on it. They have incredible brains for processing sound not all they do, but, you know, the early studies, just like they made a peep, they got, they measured the time between when they sent out the sound and when it came back, and that gave us them the distance to the target. But it turns out that the way the sound changes, the tiny little changes in the echo, on the order of less than a millionth of a second, which is even faster than the nervous system can possibly operate, they can detect those changes. And that would help give them the shape of the object. But bats don't fly around by themselves. They'll often have others in the area, and they'll dog fight to get rid of the other bats in the area. It turns out that what they'll do is if a bat is sending out its echolocation signal, here's another bat, it will shift some of the frequencies of its own call to avoid jamming the other bat's echolocation and be able to tell its call from another bat nearby. Now, now that is an amazing bit of acoustic or, or sonic choreography when you have hundreds, thousands of bats flying around in a big cave that they're all able to coordinate their calls so that they're not interfering with each other. Oh, my God. But the ability to sort of um, construct uh, a picture of the world out there using sound, um, the bats do an extreme version of it, but we humans do a pretty good job also. You know... Um, your fellow neuroscientist and also musician, uh, Dan Levitin. Mm-hmm. You know Dan? Yes. He, when I interviewed him, um, told me an analogy that I think he borrowed from a professor or mentor of his, which is that imagine you were uh, at a lake and you had two corks bobbing up and down on the water. And simply from that up and down bobbing, you could then look at that and say, well, I know there's some ducks out there at such and such a distance. I know several boats came by. I can tell what kind of boats they were. Oh, yeah, there's a swimmer over there. That's sort of what we're doing. We've got these two membranes vibrating back and forth, our eardrums. And from that simple, you know, sort of one-dimensional motion over time, we reconstruct complicated scenes and can tell uh, that any number of things are going on. And, uh, and, and, we, and we can learn a lot about them. That just amazes me. It's the basic system is mechanical. That's why it's so fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the information is just this, it's really this one-dimensional movement, right, of the eardrums. And then it's two-dimensional because you've got time. And then you can compare the two eardrums, which gives you a sense of location. But boy, oh boy, that's not a lot to go on to be able to construct, I think what you call a umwelt. Umwelt, the world built by your senses. A world built by your senses. But you have to think of the range that we're sensitive to and the massive machinery that we have for interpreting these relatively simple signals. Yeah, I know. We've got a supercomputer working on the problem, uh, but I'm still impressed. Oh, I I am too, especially (laughs) if I compare how I am before and after coffee. (laughs) I want to uh, play some sounds made by another species that you've studied. Um, We talked about bats. This is another species here. 
That was what, Seth? What you just heard was a rapping call from a female Xenopus lavis, which is the African clawed frog. And Xenopus is a little odd in the frog world. It's totally aquatic. And most frogs, only the males call. They put out an advertisement call which says, here I am, baby. This is my chunk of the pond. <laughs> Come, Come get find me. me. Yeah. But Xenopus, the females call as well, and they have two different types of call. What you just heard there was the rapping call, which means, hey, baby, I'm interested. In fact, I think it's sort of the, the amphibious uh, equivalent of this. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard, and they're like, it's better than yours. Damn right, it's better than yours. I could teach you, but I have to charge. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard, and they're like, it's better than yours. <laughs> Frogs <laughs> in milkshakes. <laughs> That, by the way, was Khalees, her big hit, Milkshake. But very similar to what the rapping female frog is doing there. Exactly. She's giving out <laughs> signals that say, I'm interested. Uh, you spent a lot of time, a lot of your life, studying this frog. I spent most of my time studying the bullfrog, but a lot of time with Xenopus as well, because Xenopus are loved by developmental biologists, because they have a, you know, this kind of unique mating behavior. But for them, for all frogs, sound is critically important. I mean, even though you're talking about an animal with a brain that could fit on your thumbnail, they carry out an awful lot of complex social behavior, and it's all mediated by sound. Uh-huh. Uh, and if you played that female rapping song through, let's say, a little speaker underwater in a pond filled with xenopus males... With male xenopus, you <laughs> suddenly have to be prying the xenopus off the speaker. <laughs> they only care about the sound, right? They, they don't That's care. They don't. Yeah, because there's another song, and I think you have a recording of that. Uh, which one would you like me to play? That would be the ticking. All right, let's play the female Xenopus Lavis ticking. All right, so what is the female African clawed frog saying there? That's go away. I am not interested, and if you come here, I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> Males are much larger than males, and even though, you know, we think of frogs as almost comical, those claws hurt. So the males stay far away from a female that is making the ticking song. Ah, uh, so I've seen pictures of these guys. They do have actual claws, unlike our, our most yeah. of our domestic frogs. And they hurt. And, and you have spent a lot of time, you say, with the, the most famous American frog, the bullfrog, and let's hear a little bit of uh, a, a male bullfrog. Everybody knows this sound. So that is what you call the advertisement call? of the... That's the advertisement call, most common call of the male North American bullfrog. And it's really loud. It's about 90 decibels. And any pond in summer, especially, well, anywhere in, the, or in North America at this point, you can hear anywhere from a few to hundreds of these things going off. Now, the females don't vocalize for the most part. They'll give little let-go-of-me calls. Uh, but they don't sing to indicate receptivity because the males will sit by the pond and they'll make the sound and the females will find them and they will base their choice on where the territory is, how loud it is, how deep the male's voice is because it takes a lot of energy. They'll sit there and they'll make this call for hours on end starting at sundown and they'll go all through the night which can make it a real challenge to live anywhere near an active frog pond. But anybody who can 
basically scream out, hey, baby, and frog for six or eight hours a night at the top of the lungs. It's got to be pretty strong. And that's how the females make their choice. Now, in addition to its seductive power, you pointed out when you sent me that clip there that that uh, song has an interesting sonic property or auditory property that we hear it as really low, but... It's not quite as low as you think. Bullfrogs use something called the missing fundamental, which means if you took a bullfrog call and you did a spectrogram of it, you'd see it has lots of energy at 200 hertz, at 300 hertz, at 400 hertz, and then it kind of fades out, and then it gets high again around 12, 13, 1400 hertz. If you look at where the energy is, most of the energy is around 2 to 400 hertz, and then up high again. But what the frog hears, the pitch that it picks up, is actually 100 hertz. And we figured this out with very ornate and baroque experiments with awake behaving frogs, playing different sounds to them to see, and manipulating 100 hertz to see what they liked and what they didn't. Their brain actually fills in the missing pitch by mathematically calculating what's the difference in the pitch between the other frequency bands. So, so you can look harmonic. at that progression uh, from 400 down through 300 and 200 and say, oh, there, there's a fundamental pitch down there below all of them of 100 hertz, a really low sound. And it fills it in. And it fills it in. Is that true for us, too? Did we hear the 100 hertz sound when we just played it? It's true for us as well. Wow. And it has a very major impact on our technology. If you look at your, pull out your cell phone, it's tiny. And one of the things about sound and hearing is that it's really strongly related to the size of the speaker and the listener. Sure. Cell phone microphones and speakers are so small that they are really not very good at playing or recording sounds, say, below two or 300 hertz. Okay, so they can't really do a good bass sound. Exactly. And yet, most males, the fundamental frequency, which is present in our voice, is down around 150, and for females, it's 250 to 300. So you'd think we'd sound all squeaky and unrealistic, but yeah. most phones sound pretty good. And it's because we use the same principles that frogs do. The harmonics in our voice make our brain do the math and fill in the missing actual frequencies. And the same principle that lets a frog run its little tiny brain and yet breed successfully and mate is running our cell phones and letting us recognize each other. So when we hear that series of harmonics, our brain knows, even if we can't really directly hear it, knows that there is a fundamental pitch that's driving those higher frequency harmonics. Exactly. And, and, and we hear it as though it's really there, but it's not really there. Exactly. For us. Well, it's a missing fundamental. Wow. Um, you know, you mentioned cell phones. Uh, you actually say in your book that you know the guy responsible for this well-known ringtone. Everyone blame Lance Massey. <laughs> blame him because it's heard so often on T-Mobile phones that it drives people crazy, right? Yep. I've known Lance for about 30 years, and we've been working together for about 12, and it started off with, before we started working together, it started off with a conversation. And he called me up and said, what's psychophysics? And I didn't know why he asked it, but I gave an explain, explanation that it's how you map the world out there onto the world inside, from physics to psychology. And told him a little bit about how you add things together, how if you overlap a visual signal with an equivalent in hearing, it really locks things together. And what Lance did was 
he was doing uh, jingle writing and composition, and he had the original logo for Deutsche Telekom, which was picked up by T-Mobile, which was uh, a bunch of squares. And I think I think the colors were pink, 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 and then a black one that was higher, and then another pink one. And he said, so if I make a tone that goes bop, 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 people will have a lock on that. I said, yeah, so we did. So... Uh, Psychophysics was to blame for the T-Mobile ringtone. That and the idea uh, that you call sonic branding, yeah? That's part of it, yeah. And that's something you do also? We started out doing that with Neuropop, but we've actually started working on a lot of more interesting areas. We did some sonic branding, which is basically coming up with a sound that people can rapidly identify with a product. Right. And sound is good for that because it's very fast, as opposed to having to put up stock photos of happy people doing happy things. <laughs> wow. But we sort of evolved from trying to do that for years. We've done uh, quite a bit of music. We've worked with sound artists. We've done some film work. Uh, but right now we're working on uh, some health and wellness applications that use sound. Sound is really powerful for psychological and physiological reasons, and we've started moving into more into that field. This is a, a company, by the way, Neuropop, is that right? Yes. yes. Of which you're a part. Yep. Um, you know, the, of course, as far as sonic branding goes, the idea of an advertising jingle goes way back. Uh, a little catchy song that, if well-designed, will cling to your cerebrum beyond uh, any... Any reasonable time. Any reasonable time. Uh, do you know that that existed even before we had broadcast media... Uh, it's probably been with us as long as we had ears and rhythm. Well, I'm thinking... Mark Twain wrote a story about it called Punch Brothers Punch. <laughs> you know, that's exactly where I was going. I thought I might surprise you with that information, but of course you're way ahead of me. Uh, yeah, he wrote this story in 1876 called A Literary Nightmare. Right. Uh, it's about a guy who's driven crazy by an advertising jingle that's printed in a newspaper. Uh, and, you know, you'd read it, and it'd get in your head, and it drives him nuts until he infects another guy with it. It was a chant by the train conductors to tell how much the tickets were. That's right. Uh, yeah, conductor, when you receive a fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. And it goes on like that, and the chorus is, punch, brothers, punch with care, punch in the presence of the passenger. And it's a brilliant earworm. I mean, it's it got everything that is just as bad as the Oscar Mayer Wiener song or the old <laughs> cigarette ads from the 60s. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, it, by the way, a bit of trivia here. It is indeed the origin of the name of the band, Punch Brothers, the uh, bluegrass. Oh, really? Band. Yeah, yeah. They took it from that, that story. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you about earworms. Uh, you know, um, neuroscientifically, what can you tell us about them? Well, basically, every time you listen to something or see something or touch something, you make a physical change in your brain. You make it easier for subsequent recurrences of that stimulus to get through. Call it, the shorthand version is those that fire together, wire together, talking about neurons. So if you hear a song and you pay attention to it, you set up certain pathways that let you remember parts of that song. And every time you listen to it, those pathways get strengthened. It, gets, it requires less and less input for you to trigger that representation of your head. So if you have a song that you've heard a lot, and preferably something that's easy to remember, uh, particularly very consonant, has words that flow together and are easy to memorize, not professorial speak, but, you know, short, lyric-like words. And, as my wife, who used to be a ballerina, points out, are at a very human rhythm, something you can tap your foot to uh-huh. at the desk. 
all those things add up to creating something that becomes extremely easy to recall. And sometimes you don't have to recall it by going, I am now going to remember this song. It can just be one or two notes that you happen to hear in the environment, and your brain will just go, that's the opening to Bruce Springsteen, Born to be Wild, and we'll just start playing it. Mm-hmm. And then you go, oh, no, not that song. And it's like, oh, that song, let's start playing that again. It's basically a representation of what you have been exposed to, and it's simple to recall and remember, and sound is very easily triggered. It doesn't have to be something you like, though. That's that's oh, no. the frustrating part is that an advertising jingle or a pop song or something can be awful, and yet it sticks in the brain, you know, uh, drowning out more important things, right? That seems like a design flaw to me. When it turns evil is when it gets stuck. And, you know, I, I actually used to like Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run, and then I had an incident where it got stuck in my head literally for three days. And I was ready to kill myself or him. What'd you do? It eventually faded. Uh, a couple of my friends came up with suggestions, which unfortunately are sort of along the lines of suggestions for stopping hiccups. They're more for the amusement of the suggester rather than for doing any good. I've been trying to work with Neuropop a little bit to try to come up with both good earworms, trying to figure out the algorithm behind it, and earworm killers, but we're still working on it. Oh, boy, you could make some money on that, though. You bottle uh, that? Maybe, otherwise someone would come after me and stop people, <laughs> stop me from making people forget their, uh, their brand. <laughs> a jingle arms race. Oh, I love it. You must be a fun guy to go to the movies with. I imagine you pick out a lot of things that most people wouldn't. Oh, uh, I can be an awful person because I'll just suddenly <laughs> sit there and go, oh, why did he use that? If I never hear the Wilhelm scream again as long as I live, it'll make me happy. The witch? Uh, the Wilhelm scream, it's become an extraordinarily overused sound effect in, in movies. Whenever a cowboy gets shot off his horse or a soldier gets shot or someone falls, they always use the same scream. It's called the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> I didn't know that. I should have known that. Yeah, I really should have known that. But uh, I am learning, and hopefully you are too, since that's part of the purpose of this show. The show being the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And my guest today is the sound expert and auditory neuroscientist Seth Horowitz. He is the author of the recent book, The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. And we'll get back to the interview right after a couple of Wilhelm screams. Wilhelm! Yeah, I'll just fill my pipe! You point out in your book some of the silliness, uh, our need for sound um, in order to amp up the impact of a visual in a movie is so great that we have to add sound effects even when a thing would not, there's no way it would create a sound. So here's a famous example. That whooshing being the uh, Starship Enterprise Yep. in empty space. Well, Gene Roddenberry actually <laughs> knew there would be no sound, but he played it and said it just seemed weird. Because everyone expects when something big goes past you, it makes a whooshing sound. <laughs> My favorite from movies is, is this sound. 
That is the sound of a roundhouse kick in a kung fu movie. Ah, okay. It sounded like a kung fu special effect, but I couldn't be sure of it. But the idea that waving your hands in the air, you know, punching and kicking would make that kind of a sound, uh, pretty hard to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not going to happen, but it's the exaggeration. And that's what sound in movies really do. They exaggerate stuff to give you an emotional response to it. They, um, they love the bass end uh, in movies. Right. I mean, bass, very low-pitched sounds at high amplitude really get your fight-or-flight system going, It's especially if you can't necessarily tell what's going on. But whenever you go to a movie that has lots of explosions and bass rumbling or even just thunder sounds, it's something that gets your back up instantly. It's like there's something big happening nearby. It's a response that doesn't need understanding. You just do it. And so it's very popular and often very overused. Very overused, but uh, it's hardwired into us, and uh, you know, movie sound designers have discovered this fact, yeah? Yeah, it, it works, so you use it. And, and that would be simply because in nature, anything that low-pitched is bound to be big and uh, momentous. And if it's getting louder, it means it's getting closer. <laughs> Usually bad for big things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it's a predator or an earthquake or a thunderstorm or... Avalanche. Avalanche, yeah. yeah it means get the hell out of here. Yep. Right? Um, what are your favorite movie scores? Um, aside from Star Wars, which is obvious, <laughs> um, Clockwork Orange, beautiful use of sound effects and classical music in non-standard for- formats. I mean, Wendy Carlos Williams doing Beethoven to make it feel futuristic, and yet then mixing it in with these classic operetta when at times of extreme emotional stress. Uh, that was just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are also television shows where they, the sounds are brilliantly done. And I'm not a television watcher, but like Game of Thrones, whoever's doing the sound work on that is brilliant. X-Files was one of my favorites, not because it, it was sort of a rehash of Twilight Zone and Kolchak the Nice Stalker, but the sound design was brilliant. I mean, there were cases where there were scenes of you're just sitting in a hospital room and you know, realize I'm getting really tense. So I do what I do, which is I grab the sample, brought it into my sound analysis system, and I noticed somebody mixed the sound of angry bees into the air conditioner. That's why I was getting all nervous. Oh, wow. In fact, you sent me a, a file um, with a sort of angry bee sound, but it's not the same one, is it? No, not at all. Yeah, there, there's a, a little trick if you want to play that sound. Yeah, let's do it. It sounds the sound like it's of looped. angry bees is really built into us, <laughs> and not just us. If, it, if you record bees and you play them around orchards, elephants will stay away from it. It's a way of keeping elephants from destroying crops. It's a bad sound, and we want to flee, but there's something about that particular bee recording. To give you a contrast, play the cat purse sound. Okay. This is another sound you provided me with. That's, that's your own cat, isn't it? That's Bluto, who is remarkably happy and lethargic at the same time. It's a very comforting sound unless you actually hate cats, and some people do. But here's the trick. You've got different emotional responses to what seem like completely different sounds. But the trick is that there were no bees. Just like in the Matrix, there is no spoon. <laughs> bees were generated by taking the cat purr and speeding it up and chorusing it so that it wasn't one high-speed cat, it was dozens of them. Just a simple change, 
they're changing the repetition rate of the noise from the cat's breathing up to the same rate that B sounds happen, and you change it from an emotionally positive, relaxing cat purr into a fearful sound of the angry bees. Mm. Well, here's one uh, that you sent me also, and this one, uh, you don't have to alter the sound itself. What you have to do is alter the context to have a completely different feeling about it. So let's just play it. Uh, a gentle, relaxing rain shower. Yeah, rain on the roof. Yeah. Lazy Sunday afternoon, doing the newspaper, phones off. Except what it actually is is a bunch of mealworms eating a dead animal carcass. <laughs> Listen to the little chewy sounds they make as they eat to a carcass. Kind of changes the whole meaning. Your brain looked for a similar sound and found something very soothing and comforting and latched onto it. Rainy afternoon, rain on the roof. But as soon as I said mealworms eating an animal carcass, I'm betting your listeners just went, ew. Um, I mean, I think most of my listeners, I, don't, I can't speak for everybody. But um, this is a case where, you know, obviously the mental image that, that comes to mind is shifted once you explain what's really going on there, a bunch of maggots in a corpse. To what extent is that true of sound aesthetics in general, a matter of conditioning, a matter of habituation, maybe a matter of sort of cultural, cultural forces. Uh, you bring up the issue of what's consonant in music versus what's, what's dissonant, what sounds um, you know, melodious and what sounds kind of clashing. Right, consonance and dissonance is a very old thing to study, and what's usually studied in the context of musical intervals. Like if you play a musical instrument, you know that C and G played together, or C, E, G forms a C major chord. Sounds good. It's the basis of almost every kid's music and the first chord you learn on the piano or the guitar. But start shifting it. Make it C, E flat, and it becomes minor. It's slightly tense. C, D is really clashing. C, C sharp is even worse. What's happening is that the the sounds, the overlap of the harmonics from the instrument you're playing, if they're in regular mathematical relationship to each other, we psychologically say that these are resolved, that they sound good together. But if they start getting closer and closer together, the harmonics don't overlap with regular mathematical relationship. It forms a tense reaction. It's related in how good we can resolve individual notes. So... And here's an example of pretty musical dissonance. This is um, the pianist uh, Lenny Tristano playing a piece called Dissonance. So actually, that, that, that's dissonance, you know, technically speaking, uh, by Western standards, although he's made it pretty musical, even though those intervals are a little bit odd in places. Right. I mean, if you get went in and played that to someone who is musically relatively naive, like a kid, they say, ew, he doesn't know how to play very well. Right. He's out of tune. But go ahead and play that for a jazz musician and say, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, though, is there something built in to our brains that, that likes certain musical intervals, that is, the, you know, certain distances between the pitches that are played together? Or is that completely arbitrary and culturally established? There's a few things that are built in. 
consonant relationships, intervals, are really built around harmonics that are common in human speech, whether it's a tonal language like Mandarin or what's called a non-tonal language like English. The very shape of our vocal tract inserts certain harmonies. You very commonly get a fifth, which would be C to G, or a major third, which would be C to E. So you have these built-in relationships that mean a non-stressed voice. And those are the things that you associate with, you know, sounding good. As soon as you start doing something that stresses it, it becomes dissonant. So all musical systems have certain relationships. They have octaves, they have fifths, most have thirds and fourths. These are common intervals. But if you go and listen to something like gamelan music, which can have 256 steps per octave, and they even detune the instrument within an octave, it takes a lot of getting used to. Almost everyone listening to it first goes, ow, fix your, fix your piano, dude, it's broken. <laughs> but there's flexibility. If you're exposed to it, you can shift it. Uh, a gra- an undergraduate at Brown, who I worked with many years ago, did this really cool experiment where she took gamelan music, which she really liked, and she took regular Western music, and she played them for students who had never heard gamelan music. And they all said, well, the Western music, I don't remember the exact piece, but it was consonant, sounded good, no problem. She played the gamelan music, and they all had this reaction of, this sounds unpleasant and dissonant. Next, what she did was she had the students wait, and while they were waiting, she just had gamelan music playing for about half an hour. Then she did the same thing, and the people who were exposed to the gamelan music, just for a brief period of time, started rating it as more consonant, because they were familiar with it. It was no longer automatically something that sounded like someone screaming or a detuned piano. It was something they were familiar with, and they started rewiring their pathways for the emotional response it gave. Mm. And uh, we should say that our, our Western, you know, sort of well-tempered scale is very restrictive. I mean, it only picks out a few intervals, a set of uh, acceptable notes um, from among, you know, an infinite number of possibilities. And there are other uh, cultures that have a much wider palette of pitches that they can use, like gamelan music. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that correct? That's absolutely true. I mean, Western intonation uses 12 semitones. And a lot of the music that you hear is really diatonic, which is only five to seven notes. Mm-hmm. And, but if you listen to Chinese opera, which definitely takes some getting used to, they're using <laughs> tunings that, while there's a lot of overlap with Western, some of the extreme edges that they really go for just sound horrible until you're used to it. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and those pitches they use that fall between the ones in the Western scale that we often call microtones, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about using music uh, for commercial purposes to influence people, uh, influence people watching movies, influence people to buy products, or at least remember products via advertising jingles. You have a whole section in, in your uh, book, The Universal Sense, about what you call brain hacks, which is, in this case, using sound to alter mood, alter consciousness, alter awareness. Uh, and you have played around with this idea a lot in your life, uh, including in your company, uh, Neuropop, uh, creating sounds that mess with our heads. Yeah. It was sort of my public experiment, stuff that, you know, you never actually write up or discuss at faculty meetings. I was sort of interested, since sound goes relatively discreetly throughout different parts of the brain compared to vision, which goes everywhere, I was wondering if you could use music as a carrier. Not so much that the music 
creates a change in someone's perception, but that if you could modulate the music, if you could impose changes on it, and the music would distribute it where sound is normally distributed through the brain, could you actually change the firing rate of certain types of cell populations? Could you actually change someone in a very specific fashion? And we did a lot of experiments with it, and for the, while there were a lot of failures, there were some interesting successes. Uh, one of them, which was my favorite, which for safety reasons we're not going to play, was called the Vertigo Tour. And I was really interested in the idea of spatial perception. Uh, we have these great mechanisms in our brain for figuring out where sound comes from. And the idea was, well, we've heard pieces of music that seem to wobble back and forth. That's panning. That's left and right. And some good surround systems will actually make it sound seem like they're orbiting your head. But could we make it seem like the person was sitting in the middle of a stable sound field, and yet they were moving? So we tried this as an experiment. I used some algorithms that trigger spatial responses and also affect the vestibular system by using really loud, low-frequency sounds. And we played it at a concert in this little concert space in lower Manhattan. But while I was watching the audience, um, about a third of them were sort of moving their heads back and forth. Some of them were just sitting there. But a last third were really wobbling around in their seats in time to this spatial modulator. And one guy literally fell out of his seat. And I realized, we did this. Wow. Um, Now, you're not allowing me to play this on radio, correct? It's not a copyright thing. It's a safety thing. If someone's listening to this and driving and they're particularly sensitive to low frequency, I don't need anybody going off the road. Okay. Uh, But I have listened to it, and uh, I I had it on in the background while I was doing some other things. It didn't screw me up at all. Um, So I'll just say that maybe I'm one of those less sensitive people. But you have um, kind of jokingly called the stuff that you do with uh, your company, Neuropop, weapons-grade sound. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that was our charm when we started this in 1999. Oh, and incidentally, one, if you want to try the Vertigo Tour again, try it with good speakers, not in the background, okay. or on your headphones. I'll, I'll put it on my headphones. And uh, I sh- you're saying that I should be prepared to fall out of my chair or, or get airsick? No, uh, it's just pay attention to where the sound <laughs> is moving in space. Well, let's play another sort of manipulative mind hacking or brain hacking sound that you sent to me. Uh, this is called Head Stretch, and that's safe to play, right? Yep, that's fine. Okay, let's play Head Stretch. So, Seth, why do you call that Head Stretch, that well, sound? Head Stretch was trying to do a demonstration of how well we can pick up very subtle differences in spatialization of sound. And it's just a monotrack of what's called frozen noise, basically white noise played in both ears exactly the same and then started putting 300 microsecond, uh, you know, which is 300 millionths of a second, shifts in timing between the two. Now, one of the things that happens with sound is the way that you figure out where something is in space is that you compare the time of arrival between your two ears. That's mostly for lower frequency sounds. So head stretch just puts 300 microsecond delays between the two ears in steps. And usually after about the second step, you start hearing that either the sounds are getting further apart, or if you're one of those people who really locks on the type of sound, the only other explanation your brain can come up with is that your head is getting bigger. It's one of those audio illusions that is very spatially sensitive. I've done it in classrooms, and people who are on, tend to be in the very back 
or the very edges, it works really well. The people who tend to be between the two speakers, they just hear the sound seeming to move apart. Well, let's let our listeners uh, experience that phenomenon for themselves. I'm going to play it right now. Again. Head stretch. Um, I have an example of another uh, such brain hacking sound. It's, it's an example of what's called binaural beating. That's something that you read about on the web a lot. People make a very big deal about binaural beating. And it's sort of an audio trick, also based on localization centers in your brain. If I play a 400 hertz sound in your left ear and a 404 hertz sound in your right ear, your brain can't distinguish only 4 hertz around that frequency range. It's well inside what's called the critical band, which is how you discriminate sounds. But your brain is trying to figure out the difference between your two ears, looking at it with both amplitude and, time, and differences in timing. So what you either hear is the difference between the two, so that's 4 hertz. You hear a shift in amplitude, or sometimes you can hear the sound moving back and forth between <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what I heard when I played this, and I, I, again, this may be um, something that varies with the listener, but I heard the sound sort of converge at a place in the middle of my skull, as that was no longer coming from the speakers themselves in front of me, but from inside my head. Yep. Uh, and it was not—it was not all that relaxing, which was supposedly the intention. Right, which is why when you see all these web pages that say, use binaural beating to calm your brain, it doesn't really work. Because using a single frequency is really just irritating after a while. Yeah. Well, let's hear it right now. Yes, that's an example of binaural beating, uh, in which you, you say uh, uses slight frequency offsets between the left and the right side to give the brain an illusion that the sound is coming from some location that it's really not coming from. In that case, I think, a location right between the ears. <laughs> right, and you can hear all kinds of claims about, oh, how it'll synchronize your brain with this rhythm and <laughs> increase your intelligence and help the country win the war, etc., that's the kind of hype that's out there. We, you know, I put it up on the website just as an example of things to look out for when you hear these kind of claims. Now, you, you jokingly called what you do with Neuropop uh, weapons-grade sound, but a lot of people have talked about trying to use sound as an actual weapon, and there have been stories around forever about the military uh, perfecting sound weapons, about the supposedly uh, sick-making or even lethal effects of ultra-low sounds, what's known as infrasound. I'll go back even further. Joshua fit to battle at Jericho. <laughs> With the trumpets, yes. Or the shofars, mm -hmm. uh, the ram's horns, uh, knocking down the walls of Jericho. But uh, what kind of progress has been made on that front in reality? Uh, in reality, most of it's hype. Uh, there are very effective acoustic weapons. One's called the LRAD. It's that if you ever see pictures around a riot where the police are standing behind on a truck with what looks like a big manhole cover and a huge amplifier, it's putting out audible sound, but it's putting out at such high levels that it induces fear and disorientation and can deafen people if they're too close. So what it's useful for is driving people away. 
Uh, this is long range audio uh, device. Right. Uh, LRAD. LRAD. In fact, I, as luck would have it, I have a little sample and I'm going to play it at low volume. That, that's a little example of an LRAD uh, from a, a video of the LRAD being deployed against uh, protesters at the G20 summit in Pittsburgh in 2009. And there's a guy on a truck with what looks like almost like a radar, but you know it's a way of focusing the sound, I guess, aiming it at the crowd, and they're running away holding their ears from that uh, what sounds like a smoke alarm almost, you know, yep. screaming. So, yeah, you can make loud and annoying sounds and, and uh, put people off, but what about weapons that could actually kill you, you know, using sound? They're pretty few and far between. Uh, ultrasound, sorry, it sounds really cool, and every science fiction movie in the world says, ultrasonic vibrations will explode your head. Yeah, sorry, doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, if you're working in an office, you're surrounded by 80 decibel ultrasonic sounds all the time because fluorescent lights scream ultrasonically. When I was back in the bat lab, we found this out the hard way because the bats were showing signs of real irritation when we walked them down the hall, which is full of fluorescence. And we had to go around and take them all out. Then it turned out the old computer monitors would scream at 40 to 60 kilohertz. So you're surrounded by these high-intensity ultrasonics all the time. They don't do anything. No, no. If they did, we'd be long gone for sure. Yeah, you can use them for an effect. I mean, if you have kidney stones, I hope not. But if you take an ultrasonic transducer, which is putting out millions of cycles per second with a lot of power and is rammed up against you with a conductive gel, then you can blow up things that are, you know, three or four millimeters across. For the most part, ultrasonics can't really do very much aside from help aim sound. Okay, well, how about the old story that I think I heard, first heard when I was, like, in elementary school, that long ago some factory uh, produced what's called infrasound, super low frequency, below the range of hearing, you know, ultra-bass sounds, that actually killed the workers in the factory. I think the story you're talking about was based on Vladimir Gavrol, who just had the coolest name for an evil scientist. <laughs> That's why everyone thought he was up to something. <laughs> it was a lot of hype, because it turns out he had never actually worked with infrasonics. He worked with low-frequency sound propagation. His papers are actually quite boring, but some of them got picked up by the press back when he was working in the 40s and 50s, and it suddenly turned into his assistant's organs were melted by the ultrasonic infrasonics. Infrasonics can have an effect on you um, if you're very sensitive to it, or, and they're very, very high power, or you're trapped in a space. There was an elevator at Brown University I used to hate going into because, you know, elevator, it's about six feet by six feet by eight feet high, and there was one broken fan blade on the fan overhead. And so you'd get that whoop, 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 whoop. Because you were sealed in a box, that low-frequency sound just churned the air at a very low frequency, and it was nauseating. It was also quite disorienting. You can get this effect in a car. Uh, depending on the shape and size of your car, if you roll down one of your back windows just a bit, all oh, of yeah. a sudden you'll yeah. feel the air go whoop, 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 whoop. Yep. But you have to pump a lot of power to be able to really disable things. Mm -hmm. There are... Uh, some people who are very sensitive to it, and there is something called vibroacoustic sickness. It's usually uh, suffered by people who are working with jackhammers or working very close to very high power fans. But I had an experience years ago when I got my first synthesizer, and I had this huge, really cheap, but very big amplifier. And I was trying to make weird sounds, and my cat jumped on the keyboard and completely messed it up. 
And I just hit a note to see what happened, and it was this bizarre, extremely low-frequency sound that made me feel odd. And then I turned to face the amplifier, which was too old and did not have a volume limiter. And as soon as I turned to face it, I threw up. Oh. But it was probably putting out about 140 decibels. And as soon as I pointed my fluid-filled abdomen right at it, it starts oscillating your abdomen. And that can make you throw up. But it was very loud, much louder than any safety system is around today. It was very close, and it was very low frequency. Your body has natural resonances from your abdomen to your eyeballs. And if you hit any of them with the right frequency, you can start making them shake. And if it's your eyeballs, uh, there were cases of a room that had an 18 hertz resonance in it, and people started reporting seeing weird gray shapes in the corners, and they started calling in paranormal investigators. Oh. And people said, no, just fix the fan in the back, and the ghost went away. Uh, their eyeballs were vibrating. Wow. But as far as weaponizing this for, for military purposes, uh, Not likely. no dice. You'd need, you'd need much more advanced power systems and auditory systems than what we have now. And quite frankly, the only advantage to an audio weapon, a sonic weapon, aside from being cool, is that air would be your bullet. So you could constantly recharge. But the amount of power you need to get it to do something is probably prohibitive. So old-fashioned bombs are just better. Yeah, or are you just a big stick? <laughs> I think listeners are probably getting the correct impression that you yourself have carried out a lot of um, interesting and sometimes crazy experiments. I was especially amused by one uh, where you used uh, what are called piezoelectric speakers to project sound uh, over distances uh, in such a way that it, the person, the, the target, would feel like the sound was coming from very nearby when in fact it was coming from far away. Yeah, it's something that's commercially available now and occasionally you run into them in museums or airports where you know you're coming on one of those walkways and suddenly you hear a voice coming from nowhere and saying the walkway is about to stop and you look around there's no speakers it's overhead but piezoelectrics let you put out uh, ultrasound so it puts out 60 kilohertz if you put a lot of power out 60 kilohertz what happens is it forms a column of sound it doesn't spread out quite the same way sound normally does. So it's sort of like having a spotlight. If you then take that 60 kilohertz ultrasonic sound and you modulate it with something like, a spe like speech or music, what happens is you can't hear the ultrasonics, but you can hear the message. It's not good for low frequencies or music, but it gives you what's called an acoustic spotlight. And you can point this thing at someone down the street and no one, aside from the person you're pointing at, will hear it. And it's really great for driving people crazy. And they'll, and they'll think it's coming from nearby. So yeah. you have a funny anecdote about actually using this. You were, like, upstairs in a yeah, building in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's like, where's that money you owe me? <laughs> you pointed it at a friend who's down the street, and so he would hear a voice coming from nearby. Over his shoulder or nowhere. Uh, yeah, your voice nagging him about a debt, um, which is boy, a perfect application of a technology like that, Seth. Of course. Um, but what you're saying is that you use this high-frequency sound we couldn't hear as a kind of carrier. Uh, you know, you kind of piggyback the the waveform that represents, say, the voice on this high-frequency sound. And when that high-frequency sound hits the hearer, you what happens? You ignore the ultrasound, but you pick up the modulated low-frequency sound. And why and does it sound like it's coming from nearby? Just because what's happening is that the ultrasound is acting as a buffer to keep the, the spoken voice spreading out. So it's sort of like... 
Ah, shooting it out to a cone right. so that it doesn't dissipate. Right. And there's no obvious source around you. Right. So all you can tell is, I'm hearing voices. Wow, wow. And there were early versions of this in the 60s that I believe the intelligence organizations were trying out to make people hear things that they're hearing voices. <laughs> but it's just way too easy to ignore that kind of thing as, oh, I just couldn't see where that was coming from. <laughs> the technology uh, wasn't as good back then. Um, you end your book with um, an interesting and, and almost philosophical section about the big problem of the mind. I mean, it's one thing to talk about the brain, uh, you know, this gelatinous uh, set of neurons, um, but it's another thing to talk about actual consciousness or subjectivity or our inner experience of the world. After studying and, and thinking about and listening to sound for so many decades— um, and studying the brain, you have some interesting thoughts about the relationship between sound and mind. Well, to me, and this is my personal bias, we, you know, despite all the millions of dollars and centuries of research thrown at neuroscience, we still, we're barely beginning to know what we're talking about, even with the brain, let alone the mind. And this is why there's often this kind of chasm between cognitive scientists who are interested in thinking and consciousness and neuroscientists who say, no, we have a physical infrastructure here and we're struggling to understand that, don't distract us, was something as ethereal as mind. It's, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, in science, we want to propose a hypothesis and we can test it and we have to be able to falsify it. So we keep breaking things down into smaller and smaller pieces. We come up with areas of the brain that respond to sound or like this frequency or only respond to vertical lines. Because this is what we could do. We could see some of the pieces and we could get replicable responses through the narrow window of an electrode in the brain or the temporally broader EEG where you're measuring millions or hundreds of millions of neurons acting in concert or the visually beautiful but temporally really smeared version of these, the fMRI, which is what makes the most of the headlines. It shows the human brain in actual action. But none of them are telling us how we put the pieces together. And it's going to be at least decades. It could easily be another century before we have the answer. Uh, you're very optimistic even in proposing that, I think. Yeah. I mean, what we will probably end up would be consciousness-like simulations in software. But to actually understand the human mind, it's going to take quite a while. And my, the way I think about it, just because I'm so sonically oriented, is that you listen to the sounds, but what's important to us are the moments between them. It's the, the pauses between notes and music, between the sounds of speech that give us the information. It's not just the, the informational content. It's how it's distributed in time. Mm -hmm. It's and the intervals between the notes. It's the uh, silence between the beats. It's, it's those things that really structure sound. Well, to me, I like thinking about the mind as not being the individual neuronal processes. I mean, this is something that I learned working with bats, and that bats hear things that operate thousands of times faster than the nervous system. So clearly, it's more than just the simple firing of neurons. Even with thousands of synapses on each neuron and 10 to 100 billion neurons in play at any one time, it's still a reductive way to think about it. Mm -hmm. I think what's going to emerge is when we can actually get all of the biochemical and the electrical function of the brain, we'll find the mind hiding and emerging in those interstices between the events, how these events relate to each other 
rather than the physical phenomena themselves. It'll be an epiphenomena that emerges from the complexity of all these individual signals. Hmm. So the relationships among things. Exactly. Uh, rather than the things themselves added up together. Exactly. Um, what's your favorite sound? I got a lot, but my personal favorite is I'm a very bad sleeper. My wife is a wonderful sleeper. She won't <laughs> sleep through anything. So we go to bed, and she snores very gently. And then after about half an hour, after we've settled in, and I'm lying there going, when am I going to fall asleep? My cat then joins us at the foot of the bed. And after about 10 minutes, he starts snoring. And there's a, there's a moment of counterpoint where they alternate. It's a very quiet sound. And I go, my wife and my cat are both safely asleep. The world can't be too bad a place. Aww. I wish we had a recording. <laughs> She'd kill me. <laughs> You're not recording me snoring. Well, Seth, uh, it's been great listening to you. Thank you so much, Robert. Seth Horowitz. His new book is The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes Your Mind. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Robert Powell, your host. Shaping your mind on radio and online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Please join us again next week. To understand this entirely new listening thrill, note that you're hearing my voice simultaneously from two speakers and through a dual reproducing system. To demonstrate to you the improvement in listening pleasure which only full stereo sound on Decca Records can give, I'll begin to move in the direction of one of our two speakers. There. You are now hearing my voice from this speaker. Now I'll move in the direction of the opposite speaker. There. You'll note that your ears have informed you that I have moved across the room the exact spatial distance from one speaker to the other. You're now hearing my voice from the second speaker. This is only one special dimension of stereo. Your ability to identify the sources and directions of the sounds.